Welcome to the Philosophy of Love podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Mina Krishnamurthy, an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and the program in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the University of Michigan. Professor Krishnamurthy's work is in political philosophy and focuses on various issues including global justice and the value of democracy. She is currently working on the philosophy of radical political thinkers such as Martin Luther King Jr., Mahatma Gandhi, and Marcus Garvey. Today we'll be speaking about the role of love in the philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr., focusing especially on the sermons collected in Strength to Love. In episode two of this podcast, I spoke with Professor Michael Griffin about three ancient Greek terms for love, eros, philia, and agape. Eros is passionate desire. Philia is friendliness or affection that can apply to one's family, friends, or colleagues. Agape, which rose to prominence in the Christian tradition, refers to the love that God has for humans and that we have for God and each other. Professor Krishnamurthy and I will talk about agape and what sorts of relations between people are needed in a just society. We'll also talk about nonviolence, the importance of empathy in the fight for justice, and current activist movements such as Black Lives Matter. Here's the interview. I mean, maybe it's worth like talking a little bit about what he means by love. Mm-hmm. So it's important for him that love isn't just like this sentimental feeling and he's not just talking about being in love with someone it's something else it's something like goodwill for mankind or humankind um it's hard to know what exactly that means but for him love has kind of an instrumental role in some ways um partly that he thinks that ultimately the value of love is that it can be a catalyst for change so we have to love everybody not just people we like um and in fact we might even love people we don't we actively dislike um people who are our enemies and for him, um, that becomes like the, the first step to kind of, kind of having a relationship, a kind of community that's ultimately essential to justice or a just society. Yeah, so is there anything else we can say about what the content of that love is? Yeah, I mean, so at least in some of the things I'm writing now, I mean, I've been, I've been trying to suggest that, you know, what's really core for him and maybe the first step in, in love, especially loving people that are your enemies who have been or have been against you, say, in the cause for justice, mm-hmm. is forgiveness. And so for him, you know, that first step starts with forgiveness. And one of the stories, I think it's in, in Strength to Love, where he talks about uh, Edward M. Stanton, who was um, a lawyer during the time of Lincoln, and eventually becomes the Secretary of War in the Lincoln administration. But he was a very outspoken mm-hmm. opponent of Lincoln. Um, but Lincoln ends up hiring him to be the Secretary of War, despite the fact that his support, Lincoln supporters are very unhappy about this, because Stanton had a lot of mean things or terrible things to say about um, Lincoln. But then ultimately, Stanton works for Lincoln. They work together to fight the Confederacy and ultimately to abolish slavery. And so King uses an example where, look, you've got two people that you know started as enemies, but then Lincoln has an open mind because he thinks ultimately that Stanton's the best for, best for the job. Um, but then that open-hearted, you know, kind of a, like step of goodwill ca- catalyzes a kind of friendship, and then that friendship makes justice possible. So that's kind of what he, I think, really has in mind. It's not love. I mean, maybe for some people, they won't even think of this as love. It really just seems to be a kind of open-mindedness, and and again, a tenderheartedness maybe makes sense because you're you're kind of taking a step back, being kind of open-minded, but maybe forgiving. Yeah, he he seemed to appeal to a notion of of agapic love, that regardless of your emotions towards someone, whether you like them or not, also this this idea that they go beyond their actions and their past actions, and seeing the humanness in someone as being 
the thing that allows you to love them. I mean, for him, it's very theological. I mean, in the sense that, you know, we have to love other people. Um, he says not even because, you know, they have like almost like a, a potential or, but it's more just like because God loves them, we should love them. So if God can love us. And he has this very Christian idea, right? If we're all sinners and God can love us, you know, we can love each other. So there are questions of like, you know, from a secular perspective, where can you take this? I mean, and you know, He's, I mean, got some Kantian veins. You might just want to say where it's almost a kind of Kantian, like, love of the innate equal, moral equality of all individuals or something like that. Um, so that's going to be one way I think you could flesh that in a way that wouldn't be so theological. Yeah, so he mentions that this kind of agapic love is the only way to achieve genuine integration. I mean, what do you think about that, the role of love, some sort of love as a necessary... <laughs> As a necessary creature, I mean, to the extent that forgiveness seems sort of possible because, I mean, are just part of love or maybe essential component? I think, yeah, which I don't know if that's actually feasible or attainable, but I think he's right. If we're holding a kind of resentment or an anger against people for past wrongs, it really becomes hard to be a community. And at least on his picture, right, having like this, these thick relationships of civic friendship are kind of essential and maybe even constitutive of a just society. So if that's the case, without a kind of loving forgiveness, let's call it, um, you know, that might actually be really difficult. It makes it, in his view, it becomes hard to move forward and to actually work towards, do the hard work together of having a just society. And I mean, his view is ultimately something really pragmatic, which is like, for better or worse, we're all stuck here. So either we can forgive each other and move on, or we don't, but then we're probably just going to stay stuck where we are. Although it's kind of hard to think about the victims of oppression have to initiate the process of reconciliation through forgiveness. Yeah, so I think the thing about King is that he thinks that um, people who are um, experiencing racism, uh, thinking about black Americans, I guess in his particular case, that, you know, and again, we can think that this is wrong. I think many of us today would think this is wrong, but he thinks that suffering and self-sacrifice are, sacrifice, uh, are virtues. You know, following, I mean, he takes that from Gandhi, but it's consistent with his Christian theological mm -hmm. background that's, you know, it's it's a virtue to suffer. And so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of suffering and maybe taking that first step, it's going to hurt. But he thinks that's part of the process and actually, it's, you know, it's part of developing a good character. Um, and partly because he thinks also that suffering um, brings that moral transformation in the person themselves who's, who's engaged, who's actually has to suffer. Um, and that transformation, again, is morally a good thing. So for him, yeah, you're right. Like, that's a hard thing to do. But for him, that's part of the path forward and, in fact, can be character-forming. Right. I mean, what do you think about that? <laughs> I mean, I do think, you know, I do think the people that belong to oppressed groups do have duties to, uh, to work towards the end of their own oppression. I'm torn about, like, where the threshold is for how much, you know, pain you have to take on, mm -hmm. especially if the other party isn't also willing to do the work. So mm -hmm. I think the example about Lincoln is, is useful because he doesn't just do the work. Yeah, he takes the first step, right, by, mm -hmm. by bringing on Stanton into, into his administration. But then Stanton does the work of helping him bring about justice. Like, he, they're equals mm -hmm. in this fight against the Confederacy and the abolition of slavery. So maybe, yeah, we have to take a kind of first step in the sense that we need to be open-minded. Um, uh, you know, so if there are um, white folk who want to work uh, alongside in movements for, against racism, we should be maybe inclusive, but they have to do the work, right? They have to do the work too. So I don't, you know, there's a way of maybe reading King where it's not just like all about 
you know, oppressed people taking on these burdens. I think the thought is, yeah, it's really hard even to take the first step, but that first step is a really important thing. And if the other person comes along, I mean, but then there are questions about what if they don't come along? How many, how many times do you have to keep trying? Um, and that's something I don't know the King says enough about. Um, and we, we have to think about that ourselves, about what the threshold really is. And if we look at the history of civil rights, yeah, it's like, how long do people have to keep trying? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah I think, I mean, that tension is a little bit present in King already. Um, sometimes he says he says things like, we have to win them over with our capacity to suffer. Yes, that's very good. That's Gandhi. Gandhi absolutely thought that. But think how much he was willing to sacrifice um, a lot, right? And so was King. So thinking about, you know, so in the um, letter from Birmingham jail, actually, he talks about the most pivotal moment, or at least in Why We Can't Wait, somewhere in that. He talks about what he sees as being the most pivotal moment, like a turnaround in the Birmingham campaign. And that moment happens when student protesters are basically hosed and chased by dogs. And they're like knocked down by these big hoses. Those images are captured and broadcast all over uh, television at the time and captured in newspapers as well. That's a turning point for him. But there were, I mean, many people were critical of his use of, like, basically young teenagers as protesters. And knowing he also actively says and why we can't wait, and we know that Y.T. Walker supports this claim, that they targeted Birmingham because they knew Bull Connor, the police commissioner of Birmingham, was prone to violence. So when they sent those student protesters out there, they had a pretty good, you know, sense that violence was going to happen. And they did it anyways. So King was willing to make a lot of sacrifices, um... Again, he wasn't willing to engage in violence himself, but he didn't particularly seem to have a problem with inducing violence. Um, and he knew that ultimately he talks about it as a way to as, – as social movements broadly, but these kinds of um, actions as a way of inducing sympathy. I mean we would use the word empathy I think more modernly to cause a kind of empathic reaction. Um, I'm talking about this in some of my work on social movements. So for him – this is, you know, the catalyst. And so for him, that was a big sacrifice, but he was willing to make it. And Gandhi, too, was willing to engage in these silent protests sitting. I mean, some people, you know, have historically thought that he knew he was going to be assassinated on the day of his assassination and went out mm -hmm. and did it because he thought it would galvanize the people, whether that's true or not. Um, but I think there's a way, I mean, where that would at least be consistent with his thinking that he really, both of them seem to think we need to sacrifice a lot um, to bring about justice. We could say that we could really lament that, but maybe he's also just a pragmatist, meaning white moderates at the time were really, really insensitive, and maybe the only way to shock them out of, out of their insensitivity is to take on this great degree of self-sacrifice, which just shows you, even if that's, I mean, you know, even if we don't think that ultimately it's the right thing, he might be right in the sense that it may take something serious to shock white Americans out of even the ones that are sort of sympathetic, but the ones who are sitting at home and not really doing anything, mm -hmm. it's going to take something serious. And that's really, I think, the lamentable, you know, that's just a little lamentable situation. And it's probably true. Um, we might disagree with King that we think that that's a, like, a, you know, oh, we're virtuous in doing so. I mean, we might think it's virtuous, but it's super erogatory um, that we're going beyond the call of duty if we mm -hmm. make that kind of self-sacrifice. But we might have to read him here also as just a pragmatist of seeing this as being necessary. And I mean, I like the, the connection between Gandhi and, and King and that the means need to be as pure as the ends that you're pursuing. I mean, with Gandhi, it was like there's a constitutive relation between the means that you're pursuing and the ends that you're pursuing. Mm -hmm. Not everyone agrees with... with... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there are reasons not to agree with that. I mean, um, I mean, 
I do think that, you know, at least in my own work, I've tried to give, again, I think first and foremost, King, unlike Gandhi in many ways. I mean, Gandhi was a great strategist too, but I think King is just so pragmatic. And for him, he almost gives like, at least I've, again, I'm suggesting this in my own work and people might disagree with this as a reading of King is a kind of Rawlsian view on why modus vivendi doesn't work. So why can't agreements based on self-interest ultimately lead to a stable society? And he's thinking about stability over the long run. Um, and what I think King has in mind is that he's looking for a permanent peace. And if we just come into agreement on the basis of self-interest, those are the kind of wrong means for him. You know, that's not the right kind of means that we get a kind of instability. Whereas if we're moved because we really care about justice, we really care about other people because of the relationship we form. Well, then that stability and that permanent peace, again, is going to be, you know, is going to last over the long run. So I think in many ways, his arguments about the means, at least I think he takes it from Gandhi. Gandhi does not have such an instrumentalist view. Then I think in King, it becomes more pragmatic, really. But I do think Gandhi and King both, like in terms of modes of like their pragmatic mode, saw that ultimately, you know, anytime there's any violence, even if we think about Black Lives Matter, the smallest thing happens, it gets turned into a big thing, and then it becomes an argument against Black Lives Matter. So I think strategically, King and Gandhi knew if we engage in violence, we're never going to get them. Again, and you might disagree with that now, and I think the conditions may be different, but at least at that time, uh, they were sort of suggesting that, like, look, if we go that way, they're never going to listen to us. That's not actually what's going to lead to a sympathetic or empathic um, response because that'll actually push them away. So self-sacrifice um, and nonviolence become important pragmatically as well. Again, I think it was part of their long-term strategy to evoke the, the masses. And do you think that the current context, do you think that's still applicable in the current context or that there are differences now? Well, I mean, as an overall strategy, like what really moves people? I mean, I think there's still, I think so. I think there could be arguments. There might be moral arguments against this, but like pragmatically, I think they might actually be right. I just think it's so easy to demonize and, and you know, to take any kind of violence that might come up around social movements and to blame people, uh, you know, to blame black Americans or people of color. So I do think they were right in thinking that that easily gets instrumentalized in a way that becomes an argument against the movement. That said, maybe, maybe now the situation is so urgent that we don't care about that pragmatic point. I mean, so, you know, so I don't know. And I leave that up to the people who are leading black lives matter to make the decision. I mean, you know, ultimately we can learn a lot from social movements and we're in a different wave right now. So maybe things have changed and different responses are called for. And maybe to the extent that King and Gandhi were pragmatists, they might have had to change their strategies over time too. I don't know. I mean, this is something I'm thinking about. And um, in many ways, I want to defer to people who are actually leading social movements. I want to point to the good work that they're doing and the thinking they're doing around these issues rather than propagate some kind of view right now. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the contrast between King and Malcolm X, where Malcolm X is like, we shouldn't be waiting for other people to give us, we shouldn't be asking for something that's our God-given right. We should just achieve that by any means necessary. But he changes his mind, right? Later on, Malcolm becomes more like Gandhi um, and actually starts to advocate a kind of more nonviolent um, movement. And so ultimately he changes his mind too um, due to religious experience, right? He basically has like a, like a religious experience and then changes his mind. Um, I don't know, but I agree that, you know, at least initially there is this big debate about whether by any means necessary, and you might say we've been waiting so long, like, 
that maybe at this point, again, what's justified also changes and not now, not just, as I was saying, there might be moral arguments, um, you know, that might argue in favor of some kind of violent tactic in the sense that we've been waiting a long time. Maybe um, nonviolence didn't really do the work that it's done. And I think if you're really cynical, you look at the civil rights movement, and if you take work by Elizabeth Hinton very seriously to say that, look, at the same time the Civil Rights Acts were being implemented, you've got Lyndon Johnson funneling a bunch of money into the incarceral state and building up incarceration. So if that was the case, then maybe the, you know, that movement wasn't as successful as we historically have thought it was. And maybe as a result, different kinds of responses are called for now. I mean, King was a big believer in the power um, of democracy and institutions. And I think a lot of people are questioning in the U.S. Um, the role that institutions play. And some people that work on the incarceral state are kind of arguing for more community-based um, self-governance. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that people are talking about, I think, in the wake of this new movement that we're finding ourselves in. I mean, the other thing is that I think we can look at a host of empirical works, and now talking about the, the like more pragmatic arguments, we do then not know that nonviolent civil disobedience, for the most part, historically has been quite successful. There's good empirical work suggesting. So this might be an argument, again, in favor of a, a kind of pragmatic argument, but based on social sciences for a kind of nonviolence. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I like I, I think you know when I think about what King says about violence, I think a lot of it rings true in the sense that he understands right why people engage in riots, and we have to take riots seriously as a kind of expression of pain, as a way of drawing our attention to the fact that injustice is live. But he doesn't see it as like the central means for moving forward. And I don't know that riots are always violent, but he's just but using that. You might even think that certain acts of violence might also similarly. I'm thinking about the recent like Nazi punching that was like all over Facebook. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, right. So in that case, it might be a way, at least initially, of calling our attention. Look, this is happening. This is horrible. But King would never want. He thinks it's understandable. But he, at least toward the, the you know his later writings, he comes to say that this is understandable. But he ultimately still doesn't think that this is the way to make genuine change. And part of the reason, back to the moral reason, is we want to create this moral community, the beloved community, he says. Mm -hmm. We're so busy, we get inculcated into a culture of violence um, where we punch each other, um, where we disagree with each other. He's worried about the kind of community that we'll create and ultimately whether we will be able to live together, which is his fundamental goal, that we all live together because we're not going anywhere. He doesn't believe in a kind of Garvian exodus. So we're all stuck here together. Um, we have to figure a way to live, and what kinds of characters or more character traits or moral virtues will make that more likely? Um, for him, hate, anger make all of those things less likely, and as a result, just you know, it isn't the right right way. So, I mean, I am really sympathetic to that idea. We all have to live here together, and we have to think about the long term. So, I think thinking about the long game, um, you know, I share his commitment to nonviolence, though I like understand that in the short term. You know, some acts of violence can be useful in, in terms of calling our attention to real and lived injustice. Mm -hmm. So you said you were working on empathy in this context and how is it how to arouse empathy? Yeah, so I mean, I'm really interested in, uh, in sort of like what moves people, particularly in this case, the white moderates, what moves them to engage in action and what are King's views about this? And for me, 
what I've been trying to argue is that what's really important to, to moving people is not just knowing that racism is wrong, but having a sense of what it's like to be victimized by that wrong. And that having a kind of access to that experience in some form is actually very powerful and motivational. And so we often in common speech, I think, have these dialogues where like, we're like, oh, white people just don't know what it's like to experience racism. Um, and I think there is some deep truth to that. And I think because of that epistemic gap, that's actually why we see a lack of motivation to like get up and do something about it now. So then the question is, how do we get those kinds of experiences, especially in say white people who aren't typically victims of racism and, you know, especially institutional forms of racism, how can they have access to that kind of an experience? Mm-hmm. And I, at least have, I'm arguing that, uh, that with King, that social movements actually play a really important role, um, partly because, well, in the case that I already mentioned with the children who were sort of hosed down uh, in Birmingham, it, social movements, when they induce violence in others, can actually cause an empathic response. So there is this phenomenon called vicarious trauma. So when we're subject to images repeatedly of other people experiencing violence, we actually experience similar physiological symptoms to as if we were actually in the situation. So increased heart rate, cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes anxiety, depression, especially when we see these things repeatedly, repeatedly. Um, so that can be one way of almost experiencing what it's like uh, to experience violence on the basis just because of the race that you belong to. And then that is ultimately, at least on King's view, that that moment becomes pivotal and is what moves the white mo- moves the white moderates and Kennedy um, to to you know move forward on the issue of racial segregation. And so I think we see something similar with Black Lives Matter, putting police brutality, police murder um, videos, you know, initially, not anymore, but I mean, initially in stimulating the movement, this was sort of at the forefront. And I would argue that that is a way of kind of stimulating vicarious trauma um, in the, the onlookers. And the thought is that will actually stimulate, stimulate behavior, you know, action on their part. So kind of empathic response, you get a sense of what it's like, oh, this is what it's like. I get pulled over for basically doing nothing and I could have my life threatened even when I don't, even when I'm unarmed. Oh my gosh, I had no idea it was like that. Now that I know, whoa, I'm enraged and more likely. I'm not saying it's like a necessary condition. It's more of this probabilistic one. It makes it more likely that, you know, the white moderates or white Americans will engage in anti-racist action. Right. So it's a question of how to how to illustrate this in a way to build upon the empathy that people already have for each other so that they'll be motivated to act. I mean then we we can also go back to the question of like how how long does it take or something like that. I think we have to be, I think it's Coretta Scott King says that like every generation we have to kind of fight. I don't remember the exact words, but it's the idea every generation we have to fight for justice. And in different ways, maybe we ultimately realize that, you know, okay, so we got the Civil Rights Act and I mean, ultimately the Voting Rights Act isn't hold anymore but um we got some of those things that maybe it wasn't enough i mean king for king this was a gradualist approach yeah that was step one step two was basically socialism meaning let's get a basic income um you know for everybody not just black americans or like i'm not just talking about black americans i'm talking about everybody so for him you know that was the next step and so maybe as we're talking about racial equality now we're also talking about the you know immigration law because you know we're looking at the kind of racism that's focused on immigrants so now as we see the you know, the movement is, I think the, the platform that the movement for black lives has put out is so inclusive. It's intersectional in such a variety of ways. So maybe now that, that notion of equality, we see that before it wasn't enough. And now we see what problems exist. And now as we move forward, we're having a broader concept and maybe over time, that's just what happens. It gets bigger and bigger changes over time as we see what our needs are. Um, and we come to see what's actually, you know, still unjust. 
So in that way, it's part of the process. If you think about justice as an ongoing process, perhaps almost inherently, because it's never perfect, it'll always be imperfect, we will just keep going through these processes again and again and again over time and hopefully moving you know, towards justice constantly. Of course, there will be steps back. That's the other thing that King is very clear about. You know, there, he does talk about the white backlash a lot. Um, and, you know, you can expect a backlash, but the hope is the trajectory overall will still be forward. Oh, what do you think about the importance of faith? <laughs> yeah, so this is something else I'm kind of writing about in this big project on distrust, partly because, again, like we talked about this before, he's constantly trying to balance out the cynicism, I think that, and I mean, so many of us feel now there's a deep sense of cynicism, but if that's all you have, again, you're never going to be motivated to engage in action, and he's all about getting people to become part of the movement and to try to work towards change actively. So for him, faith becomes this really important feature because you have to believe, at least in part, you know, that a better future is possible. Without that belief, like what are otherwise, what are we doing here? So it's very important to his project that you know he is trying to inspire a, a faith in people. Now, what kind of faith is it? Totally theological. Mm -hmm. I mean, in some versions, yes. In some other versions, no. So on one hand, it's the fact that he believes in God and that with God, the, the possibility of a bright future is always there. But he mm -hmm. believes that God works through people, so people have to ultimately be the ones that act. So it's not – he's careful to caution people, like, believe in God, but – that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything. We have to get up. We're the agents of change. Um, and God works through people. But then he is also, so while he has that very theological notion, he also um, at other places talks about just a blind faith in the belief that moral progress is possible. That could be a kind of arc, you know, Kantian where the arc, you know, the moral arc of the universe, uh, you know, bends at a certain, towards justice. Mm -hmm. Um he, he definitely thinks just like as, it's kind of a moral faith, which again is a leap of faith, perhaps like religious faith is too, mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be um, religious. It could just be something else that isn't religious, like Mill or, or Kant or whoever else. I think it's Robert Marihue Adams who has a paper on moral faith, and I think he argues that ultimately it requires a leap of faith just in the way that other forms of faith do because we don't necessarily have reason to believe that morally mm -hmm. things will get better. Mm -hmm. But for King, he really takes um, – his view, I mean, the way that he looks at this thing is through the lens of history. And so he points at other movements, whether he's talking about uh, Egypt in the time of Moses or, you know, other historical examples where people have kind of come together in a movement and attained freedom. But he thinks that that is almost proof that moral progress is possible because we can look to history where things have changed and changed for the better. And that is evidence that at least it's possible. So do you think he's an optimist about human nature? I think that he grapples deeply with the possibility that humans maybe are not good. I think he's constantly worried about it, and he's over. He talks about being overwhelmed by the weight of the movement and 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 worries about failure. But I think ultimately, um, he believes that things will go well. He does really have a kind of moral faith because of his his faith in God, which he talks about time and time again. But also these historical reasons. So I think all these things his own right. exploration of this concept leads him to believe more deeply in it right and i think he does mention in, at some point that we have a duty to love in the in the radical agapic sense that yeah that absolutely and then the arguments for that are really interesting i think the arguments there are largely epistemic um this whole you know section on they know not what they do 
So either because they they literally don't know that racism is wrong, um, for whatever reason, maybe they're being manipulated by ideology. He talks about you know racism as an ideology that's used to promote white supremacy, and there's some it can be co-opted. You know, all kinds of things can be co-opted. So maybe they just don't know that racism is wrong. Um, but even if they don't know, even if they know that it's wrong, they also, as I've been suggesting, is they don't know what it's like. And as a result, they don't, in some sense, they're just, you know, they're blind, he says. They're morally blind. So um, we have to forgive them because there's this epistemic gap. And if they if they had overcome the gap and were still blind, maybe we could blame them. But the thing is, there is this gap that exists. And as a result, we have to forgive them and take a step towards them. But simultaneously, it says we have a moral obligation to be intelligent. We do. And I mean, they do too. I mean, so, yeah. you know, white Americans have to keep, have maybe an obligation to be open-minded. They need to be critical. So yeah, okay, racism can be propagated through, you know, a variety of methods, but we have to be, again, critically minded, as he says, tough-minded. Um, and that's where he thinks philosophy may actually help. Um, but the, even that's like, sometimes is not surmountable, even with the best of tools. So as a result, we have to forgive people for the mistakes they make. Because even when they're trying their best, they might still be led down the wrong path. Because the epistemic gap arises exactly. from differences in experience. Yeah, that I mean, there are two kinds of things. The epistemic gap is like just because we can be manipulated. But look at all the propaganda coming out. I mean, mm-hmm. of Breitbart, for example, people who think of that as a very credible news source. Again, we might talk about affected ignorance where they're ignoring evidence mm-hmm. to the contrary. But I think King thinks even when people are being goodwilled, they can be led astray because there's so many forces that are kind of behind white supremacy. It's hard not to buy into white supremacy. Um, and so on one level, and because, you know, we can be manipulated, I think, by it, into believing it. But on the other hand, even if that's not the case, yes, there's this experiential gap. And in a way, for him, the experiential gap is probably the most important, because that cuts through everything. For him, you know, there might be all this propaganda out there, but once you've experienced it in a way, you can't not see how how bad it is and that it requires immediate action. And do you think distrust plays a role here? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I do think for some, you know, on one hand, this is why he thinks we have to be distrustful of the white moderates, because there are all these kind of epistemic gaps. We can't rely on them dependently to promote the cause, you know, for racial justice. So we should be distrustful of white moderates. Um, But then we also have to be forgiving, you know. (laughs) It's, again, this balance of things. Yes, we should be sort of cynical, but we kind of have to forgive them. We need to try to find some ways to overcome these epistemic gaps. And ultimately, people who suffer from racism are probably the only people who can really do it because they have sort of, you know, um, privileged access to these experiences and perhaps are the only ones who are really in a position to convey them properly because of their privileged access. Yeah, I was was thinking about integration and that he talks about unenforceable and enforceable obligations and how laws can laws can create a a non-segregated society Mm -hmm. but you can't have a genuine community purely through laws you have to have right what you were saying these thick Mm -hmm. relations and these thick friendships Mm mm-hmm Right. So interestingly, I mean, so other people like Ambedkar, an Indian, a Dalit, uh, I guess, political thinker, sort of thought that social integration really required um, integration in other ways, meaning people, at least he was talking about the caste system, and he was talking about 
um, intercast dining actually as being one of them. We need to sit down and have meals together because that's a way of actually coming to know each other. So it's not, you know, so there are these, at least on some other people's views, social integration is really important part of these basic, you know, might say the basis for friendships. We actually need to sit down and get to know each other, have tea um, and talk about what's going on in the world or things like that. So there is a question about like, well, we'll actually bring people together there is some empirical, so I think for us, you know, we can just try to point to the sociologists and say, well, we'll let them answer this question. Um, and some things that we do know is that even integrating children in schools racially is not enough for them to become friends. Um, what we see actually is more likely um, James Avery, Jim Avery, I believe at Duke, does some good work on this and has suggested that um, – that actually it's when students play together in sports teams that they actually you actually get racial integration, meaning people from different races being friends. And so, you know, being in the same schools or even living in the same block may not be enough unless there are these other kinds of interactions. And so then for social, for that that thick sense of community, there is this question that you're pointing at, what is really required to get that? And it might be a lot. It might mean integration in lots of ways. Um which might take us back to the question about love. Maybe it means, I mean, Ambedkar definitely talks about the mixing of blood through children, the having of children. So he thinks that ultimately one way to just like erode the caste system is to just have children across caste lines um, and just eventually, so intermix blood. So, you know, for him, that's a really demanding, but the, on the other hand, what is lost with that, right? So let's say that you know, uh, people from oppressed groups integrate and have children with people from privileged groups, but those oppressed communities and their way of life might be lost and their identities might be lost. So, you know, black people and white people just integrate, have children together. Well, then we lose, you know, the culture of, of black Americans and, and and their cultural racial identity. So that would be a big loss, which is something mm -hmm. that Ambedkar really doesn't seem to think, partly because he thinks that these identities are constituted by oppression at least in the caste system, mm -hmm. both the privilege and the non-privilege, and actually they're just not really worth saving, I think might be his view. So whatever comes out of this, the synthesis mm -hmm. would be a much better thing. I don't think that many of us today would agree with that. So um, it's still then it points back to your question, just being a really thoroughgoing question. What is required to have these relationships of friendship and in ways that actually seem that are morally appropriate where you don't have to give up you know, the sense of belonging that you get from being in these communities, oppressed communities, for example. Right. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. How do you think our, our love and individual relationships can contribute to the, the agapic love that's going to form a community? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't think there's much more to say than the things that we've already said. It's just that it's important for forming relationships. But I think one thing that we haven't really talked about at all, and this is not from King at all, is self-love and what role that might actually play in the creation of a just society as well. So, you know, King's response is like, how do we work to, towards justice? Well, we actually have to look at the other and then we have to kind of have love for them. And then that'll help us, as you said, integrate, but at least work together as a community. But sometimes, you know, we also have a lot of self-distrust where we don't trust ourselves. Audrey Lerner talks about the self-distrust we have as a result of racism. We doubt ourselves when we, you know, we've experienced racism. We don't have um, perhaps as much a belief in ourselves as we should do. Our sense of self-confidence is eroded. So sometimes self-love can be really important because you know, to get at the problem of racism, victims of racism need to take their own beliefs about it and what makes it wrong seriously. And so if we're not in a position to do that as people of color, then maybe what we need is self-love because self-love now becomes a way to actually counter the bad effects of, of self-distrust. Um, and so that maybe puts us in a better position to be 
you know, part of the the beloved or just community by like taking ourselves seriously, building up our own self-confidence so we can contribute as equals. Um, because without a certain self-trust, we can't actually be equals in that relationship or friendship that King is so concerned with. Um, so us being equals in the relationship means that other people have to take us seriously, but we also have to take ourselves seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. How do we inculcate? What are some stuff that we can take to inculcate that <laughs> Yeah, so I think cultivating a sense of self-love. What does that actually mean? I don't know. I think, you know, Kendrick Lamar has this great song about I love myself, right? And I think, I mean, so I'm kind of writing a paper in the that's sort of on the back burners about King on love and Kendrick Lamar on love. And he, I think so the new wave now in many ways has been to think about, well, how do I love myself? Because I'm feeling beaten and battered by racial oppression. Um, and so how do we do that? I don't know. Be around with others who are like-minded or, I mean, I personally derive a lot of comfort from being with my friends of color who are experiencing similar things and we find ways to build each other up. So there's, you know, there's a sense where that maybe actually requires a certain kind of turning away from the other. That maybe I have to turn to not only myself, but other selves that are like myself mm-hmm. as a way of kind of finding self-love in this broader community. Mm-hmm. So, and then maybe, you know, so this is where sometimes ultimate integration might actually require some segregation. Um, self you know, chosen, like on my own part, where I'm turning towards other people of color and building a safe community allows me to build self-trust. Then I can turn back, you know, um, mm-hmm. to say the white community and be able to interact perhaps as, a, as an equal or at least I'm in a better position to do so King saw the goal of nonviolent resistance as the beloved community a community of people who live together as equals where violent resistance leads to further hatred and violence and no resistance leads to moral and spiritual suicide nonviolent resistance allows people to live together while seeking justice Agopic love is crucial to the creation of the beloved community. For example, in Strength to Love, King says, With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation. But we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create the beloved community. But what does it mean to love someone in an agopic manner? For King, to agape someone is to love them because God loves them. He says it's a love of the other that doesn't depend on their qualities, and it's a love we have of the other for their sake and not for our own sake. I agree that agopic love is important, but I sometimes struggle to convey this in a way that doesn't sound empty or inconsequential. I don't want to say something like, justice will be achieved through love, because that sounds like it will be achieved exclusively through love, and that seems both vague and false. And moreover, the idea that we could or should love everyone itself sounds vague and nearly meaningless. What is this love supposed to be? King is aware of the potential problems with this way of thinking about love. In talking about love of humanity in general, he says, it has a danger point. It is impersonal. It says, I love this abstract something called humanity, which is never quite concretized in an individual. Dostoevsky, the great Russian novelist, said once in one of his novels, I love humanity in general so much that I don't love anybody in particular. But I think we get into the trap of thinking agopic love is meaningless, only if we think that love is an emotion. On that picture, agopic love is this vague feeling towards other humans, and the actions or obligations that might stem from it are even more vague. But if we go back to bell hooks and think of love as an action, then agopic love isn't a feeling, it's a way of treating other people. We can then make more sense of agopic love in a Kantian vein. What it is to agape someone could be something like treating them as an end and not merely as means. 
We can then see how agapic love could play a much more substantive role in a just society than you would otherwise think. Though it's also not to say that feelings have no role. In the same way that there is a crucial feeling component in romantic and friendship love, there may be a feeling component in agapic love. This could be what Mark Miller talked about in episode one, namely love as recognition. Mark saw agapic love as a connection that emerges when I see a core aspect of myself in another. For him, agapic love is a recognition of fundamental sameness between me and another person. Maybe this sort of thing could be the feeling component of agapic love. And it could be crucial to justice because it would make our actions towards others bound by more than dry moral obligations. And maybe these richer sorts of relationships are necessary for justice. So if we start to think about love as action, then there is a much more natural affinity between love and social justice and moral obligation. It also makes sense of why self-care and self-love can be such radical or revolutionary acts. When you act to promote a person's well-being, especially when that person is part of a marginalized social group, you're acting against the grain of oppression and helping to advance social justice. 